I actively seek out interesting new learning opportunities. Everyone is walking around in their own TV show. I also kind of romanticized this concept of like helping others. Welcome to Venture Visionaries, a space where we dive into the stories behind the leaders reshaping our world. I'm Thomas Igema, and today we're exploring a narrative not just of success, but of profound human transformation. I deeply believe that the true meaning of a person is not where they happen to stand in the moment, but rather the journey they were willing to endure to get there. And few people embody this as powerfully for me as Brian Frank. He's a leader who exemplifies growth and transformation, not just of the tech world, but of himself. Brian's journey is impressive. From leading global sales operations at LinkedIn to being COO of Cameo and now the CEO of Farmhand.ai, his is a conventional picture of success. He oversaw the building of a sales machine that propelled LinkedIn from an upstart, fast-growing startup into the $26 billion global juggernaut that Microsoft purchased in 2016. A cameo, he was at the helm through both the excitement of the blitzscale hypergrowth of the celebrity network ecosystem and then the pains of the rapid market contraction that followed. And now at farmhand.ai, he and his team are building the first of its kind AI-assisted robot that helps farmers harvest and process their crops faster, more efficiently and at lower cost. And because Brian has always been the cool kid on the block, they're starting with the cannabis industry. But behind all this business brilliance, it's Brian's inner journey that's truly remarkable. When I want to describe Brian, the first three words that come to mind are authentic, compassionate, and humble. And if you know anything about Silicon Valley, you know that these aren't words anyone would use to describe most successful tech executives. Even more powerfully, and I hope he'll forgive me for saying this, these aren't words anyone would have used to describe Brian as an early leader at LinkedIn. And yet, in spaces where power and prestige have calcified too many business executives into these tortured geniuses, leaders who build incredible organizations and are changing the world, but are also leaving an arrogant trail of toxicity in their wake, Brian has chosen a different path. He's allowed his experiences to soften and mold him. And while that's been good for Brian, it's been life-changing for the people who've been able to work with him. And so I wanted to understand a little bit more about the how and why of this beautiful and all-too-rare growth story. In our conversation, Brian will open up about his personal growth journey his transition from environmental law to tech, and his innovative venture into cannabis automation with farmhand.ai. We'll delve into the challenges of leadership, the nuances of navigating startups, and the power of embracing diversity and multiculturalism in corporate America. This episode is more than a career chronicle. It's an invitation to be more human in our leadership. As we open up the year, Brian's story is a testament to the endless possibilities that await us when we commit to personal transformation and authentic leadership. Let's dive into the conversation with Brian. Brian. 
you've played in a lot of different industries and careers, right? You started off in the legal world, you're in tech, and you've applied tech to a number of different places, professional networks, the celebrity networks. Now you're in what I'll call agriculture. Like, how do you define yourself professionally after that wide range of experiences? Well, I'm, I'm a tech unicorn from that perspective <laughs> in that I have a really unusual number of diverse experiences when it comes to jobs and careers. And I, uh, it's been intentional. I actively seek out interesting new learning opportunities mm. or things that I have passion for. The majority of it has actually come post my experience at LinkedIn because mm. I've had the privilege of being able to do so and go after those type of things. This is my retirement in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing stuff that I want to do because I find mm. it interesting because I learn new things. And uh, even though the process of learning can be very painful, it's also one of those things which can be very rewarding as you grow and as you do things. So it gives you the opportunity to achieve and push yourself in new directions. And that's kind of what I'm all about. I guess I, I would say I'm a lifelong learner. What is an example of how learning has been painful and how has it been rewarding regardless of that? I've had so many pain points in my career, and I think of them all as helpful in many ways. I mean, I can't think of any terribly painful thing that wasn't like in some ways provided some level of introspection in some ways very great. Let's say what was a great one, you know, going back to LinkedIn. I didn't know how to to deal with people in a lot of ways. My approach to how I interacted with others was couched in my experiences of my life and the way I had been doing it for many, many years. And as a result, I was getting a lot of bad interactions and frustration mm -hmm. on my part. And that was a that was a pretty painful thing. And, and at one point I almost got fired over it. And I really had to sit back, open my eyes, really sort of like learn better about how I'm interacting, how others are perceiving me and how I'm perceiving them in order to, to ultimately kind of come through that and be able to be a better leader for others, be a better friend and person in the mm -hmm. world. And a big part of that was more compassion. And I would describe that type of compassion as other awareness. When you interact with someone and you really, most people are not aware of others. We're only aware of ourselves. But the more that you can actually like sort of like read the room, get a sense of how other folks are feeling, be a spectator to you and to your thoughts and to the thoughts of others. I think that was really one of the big breakthroughs for me getting out of that negative cycle. I think if you poll most people I know who work anywhere in corporate America, tech or otherwise, on like the number one thing they think their leaders need to work on, it would be something around what we discussed. So it's it's like not not alone. And it does get me to think, though, it's one thing to have a moment of awareness that this is something I need to work on. But it is by definition actually pretty amorphous. It's how people feel around you. It's what you read the room like, what was the path of going from moment of awareness to actually building that out? Well, I wrote a post on it on LinkedIn. It was not a very popular post, unfortunately. So maybe I, you can start there. But yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it was called uh, Welcome to the TV Show of My Life. And it was all about this concept that everyone is walking around in their own TV show. Mm. Not a child of the 80s, right? And actually a child of the 70s, really. But like, so I grew up watching TV. Like TV is like, you know, pop culture TV is my jam. I, I crush Triple Pursuit. <laughs> from, from that era, I have this, this belief that, you know, your Thomas is in the Thomas Gaming show and it's all, you're the star and everyone else is, you know, this is, this is the episode where Thomas interviews Brian for this podcast. And so like, that's kind of how it is. But then 
just like any TV show, there's someone who's watching. Like imagine mm. if someone was watching your TV show right now, you know, and, and every minute of your day, every waking hour of consciousness was like being watched by some reality TV show fans who were fascinated mm. by the life of Thomas Sigeme. They would be seeing the things that you don't see. They would see when you're like, oh, he's going to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> but you would have no idea. Oh, I can't believe he said that. Mm. You might not even realize it, right? But it's because... When people are like passively watching others, they can see all these things. But when they're actively in the middle of it, it's hard to do two things. It's hard to interact with you and then really read you and see you and sort of like mm. put myself here and say, okay, this is Brian and Thomas talking. And like, how would I be viewing this if I was an outside person? I think that is definitely a big part of it. It's just sort of like that's, you know, and I try to do that a lot of times still, like when, especially when I'm with clients, a lot of times I try to stop because, you know, you could be very nervous and, you know, want to say your stuff, you know, pitch your product and tell about how everything is. But really like, that's not what they're thinking about. They're not like, oh, I can't wait to hear the value proposition of this new product. They have lots of other things going on. I'd be thinking about like, damn, my tire got a flat this morning and I need to get it fixed this afternoon. Or they might be thinking about, I have all that document accounting I have to reconcile later this afternoon. (laughs) It's like, they're in that mindset. So like trying to like pull them into like a comfortable place of like where their mind is in order to sort of like match you and Mm. communicate effectively to them. That's the trick that I try to do. I'm curious if we just take a look back to your childhood. What do you think were some of the earliest indicators of either the career you would take or the kind of leader you would be? I was one of the rare people who grew up really having a pretty clear vision of what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an attorney, a lawyer. You know, primarily it was because, you know, I didn't I didn't grow up wealthy. I didn't grow up in a, a privileged background from that mm-hmm. perspective quite the opposite. I'm actually the first person in my family to go to college. And so for, in one, many ways, it was sort of a way of escape. Oh, you know, like, you know, you can, you can do this. And I also kind of romanticized this concept of like helping others and representing others. But, and I think that mm. go towards leadership because I'm definitely a service leader as opposed to someone who was like, I'm in charge, effectuate my will. In terms of like people who helped me there, I think certainly my parents and others kind of encouraged me to move in that direction. I was probably a pretty precocious kid. Therefore, like, you know, go for it, Ryan. No no one ever said like, no, you're too stupid to do that. Or no, you're not going to be good at that. It was actually the opposite. Everyone said, you're going to be good at that. Do that. And so I, I set on a mission to basically like get a law degree and be a lawyer. And that was from probably from age 10 all the way through high school. In, in high school, or actually college, I became like a lot of college students thinking like, what is this all about? Like, am I just in this to make money? Am I in this? Mm. To, why am I doing this? There wasn't really a lot of meaning behind it. And I found the meaning by combining two of my passions together. One was this concept of law and everything that went into that, which I knew nothing about, but like I had an idea. And then uh, environmentalism. So mm. I had an early passion for protecting the trees, for you know wanting to see our wilderness areas preserved for future generations. And so I became an envi- I decided I'd become an environmental lawyer, and that was the passion. And I had a bunch of good friends. Because I spent a good chunk of my youth in the mountains backpacking. And I think those people helped push me in that direction. That feels to me such a far cry from CEO. But I'm curious, does it feel like a far cry to you? Or are there elements of what mattered to an environmental lawyer that you think kind of piece their way through? Well, I mean, there's the environmentalism in Canada. So I think that's that's true. That's probably have like a link together, right? You know 
I mean, not really. They're not, mm. they're not, they're very different things. I mean, no more than sales operations, probably less than sales operations. The truth is where I've come out on that. And because I made a big pivot switch in career after I graduated and became a lawyer doing environmental law. And the big pivot was going into tech, not tech sales, but tech law. I started out working in a corporation mm. and that's micro devices was the first company I worked for. It was one of the clients from the law firm I worked at. So I was recruited away to work at this uh, client by the client while I was at the law firm doing environmental work for them. What happened was when you're a junior lawyer, number one, you get stuck with the crummy work, right? You're doing yeah. that front stuff yeah. at the bottom of the, the pyramid. You know, to, even though I was doing environmental work, it didn't feel like it. Right. It mm -hmm. felt like I was like slogging through like hours and hours and hours of documents, looking, building a privilege log. Right. Yeah. It's still yeah. something that people are doing today, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. And this is 30 yeah. years or something. But it was, it was 1998 or so, 96. And technology was like exploding all around me at the time. I mean, it was, I was living in Silicon Valley. You know, Yahoo had launched and computers were coming out. I mean, this was the heart of everything tech. And I was basically like working in this like super community. I could have been in, you know, some random part of the Midwest doing the same exact thing, right? It had no interest. The work itself was like pretty meh. Mm. Culture of the firm was pretty horrible. Like there was this shiny thing of like computers. And mm. I am definitely one of those kids who had like a big fantasy thing growing up. Like I love comic books before they were cool. Now <laughs> I think things that I liked when I was young have like become socially acceptable. 15, there's like no way I would have told anyone I was like reading comic books and watching anime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was not cool. <laughs> but I was super into it. It's come full circle now because like my son is into those things. Are you yeah. Saying, you know? And like now it's like, you know, totally cool. There's like online groups. There's like people yeah. they go together and they go to big fantasy conventions. Like for me, it was like, you know, you were ahead of the curve. Yeah, I was, I was, I was self-aware, fortunately enough to know that was not cool. Yeah. But I was like really into like, you know, this whole concept of computers, even though yeah. I wasn't good at computers and didn't, I hadn't like, you know, had anyone to help me sort of become great at computers and understood like word processing. I knew what they were and I was interested in them. I was very fascinated yeah. by the industry. And so I went and I left the, the law firm and I was kind of like in a way giving up on my career into environmental law, which was like a big mm -hmm. sacrifice, right? Cause I had like, oh, I had this vision of one day I would be the general counsel of the natural resources defense council or something, you know, mm -hmm. something nonprofit environmental organization. But instead I became an in-house counsel at AMD, which is a semiconductor manufacturer. At the time, he's struggling semiconductor manufacturer. Now they're like a big power, but the day they were Intel's bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I went into tech and when I went into tech, it was just like, I was just fascinated to learn everything about it. That was the first time Thomas, maybe that I really like was like drinking from a fire hose in terms of like learning new things. Mm. I was just like sucking it in and just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. This is amazing. This is amazing. And to this day, I will say that I think that the most amazing invention and product in the history of humankind is the integrated circuit. You know, and I've worked on lots of tech, including yeah. AI. Yeah. I will tell you that that the integrated circuit is a modern marvel of, of, of technology. It is amazing. But one of the most amazing things about it is, is it's so hard to manufacture, but it costs so little. People don't understand what goes into making an IC, but they sell for 19 cents or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah.
I'm curious, I want to like zoom in a little bit on farmhand.ai. Walk me through a little bit of like the origin story and whether that felt like something you stumbled upon or something that you'd been working towards. I definitely stumbled upon it. You know, the farmhand has been around a little over two years. This is pretty new, right? The origin, the true origin story comes from my co-founder, Mylan. Mylan is someone that I know through my Bridgewater network, and I worked at Bridgewater. And he is a brilliant, brilliant engineer, you know, software engineer, but also just like one of those guys who can like, he's just as comfortable picking up a a blowtorch or like wiring an electrical cabinet, you know, as he is you know, writing really, really, really complex software. Mm. And when I say complex software, it's like, it's not the type of software that we used to write at a lot of my other ERP software companies where you're basically like building an application and building in a feature yeah. or something. Yeah. And not to like demean that type of work, but like, it's just not the same, right? <laughs> it's just not the same. I mean, you, you, there's lots of ways of doing it and people do it right yeah. like that. But like the stuff that he's doing, you know, we're, we're like, we're like building tools to convert static 2D objects into 3D objects, for example. So like, you know, complex geometric formulas. I, mean, I couldn't begin to even comprehend how that's being done, let alone do it. So it's the difference between like uh, going back to integrated circuits. You could design an integrated circuit, right? And you use this product, you know, one of the most popular products called Cadence. Cadence mm. is a company in this space, right? They've been around for years. That's a tool that people use to actually design the integrated circuit. In the old days, meaning like the 70s or 60s, <laughs> they would lay out an entire room the size of a football field with paper, and they would draw the integrated circuit with pens and mm. things. Mm. That's how big it. That's how big it was. Football field size room, paper on the floor to draw the pattern. What they yeah. crazy, right? That was how they did. Now they have yeah. a software product that basically, you know, you do it online. So that's the product. Now imagine building that product to allow for that design. It's another mm-hmm. level of complexity. Anyways, so uh, so so Mylan is a genius and but passionate about things. And it's one of his real passions is farming. Mm. And after Bridgewater, he moved back to Oregon to farm and to bring his family and sort of like live in the, you know, out of the out of the woods, more to speak, as opposed to in the big city. And as he was doing things and growing different things, he decided one day to grow some cannabis. Mm-hmm. And he grew this amazing cannabis, right? You know, this was just more for fun and not yeah. like it was legal, right? You know, it's yeah. Yeah. legalized. It's like, oh, let's just give it a shot. So he grew all, he grew a bunch of cannabis, right? I don't know, whatever, 50 pounds or something. Cut it all down. He gets it into these little buds, individual cannabis. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know this, by the way. So this is what I've learned. There's 50 million pounds of cannabis flour sold in the United States every year. The flour that you buy looks like, they called it a nugget, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a hard green or whatever color it is. It can be purplish mm-hmm. or brown too. Hard green nugget with little yeah. kind of white things all over the surface of it. Those things are called trichomes. That's where actually yeah. where, where the actual um, hallucinogenic THC is included in these trichomes. And But before it gets to that state, it has to be processed. And the way it's processed is that that little nugget actually has is covered with leaves. Mm. Water leaves are all over the surface of that. And humans trim off those leaves with little scissors. They're called trimmers. This is actually the most expensive part of cannabis cultivation. And it's a completely unautomated business. So when Mylan cut down his, you know, whatever, 50 pounds of cannabis and put it into these little buds, there was leaves all over it. And he reached out to a friend and said, what do I do? He said, well, you have to cut them off with the scissors. Special <laughs> scissors. Like a, it's a scissors that's used for bonsai, like the bonsai. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's actually the same brand. <laughs> 
And so people sit there and they start trimming and he started doing the trimming and it took him like, you know, he did like maybe a half a pound and it took him like an hour and a half a day. Yeah. It takes a long time to do this, right? He stopped and said, there's no way I'm going to do this. This is going to take me like a year to do all this. It's like there's piles and I'm like one guy. And I'm basically doing basically like quarter pound in four hours. That was the beginning of this idea of like, I think I can build a robot to do this. And the real only reason was is because one, because Mylan is a dreamer and two, because the technology is actually available now. It was not available 10 years ago or even five years ago, but the technology mm-hmm. is available now to do this. And uh, and so he went about to basically building this incredible, you know, first generation machine. And we're now in our sixth generation of the machine. I ended up getting introduced to Mylan through a comment of a friend, a great friend of mine, uh, Shannon mm-hmm. Steele. And so Shannon introduced me to Mylan and uh, we connected. We liked each other a lot. I love the idea that this is fascinating. It's really interesting. And I left Cameo. I was gone for like, you know, so I was just hanging out for six or eight months. And then one day, and I had interviewed for a few roles and things were interesting and, you know, but nothing that really like hit or connected with me or was like the right thing of this thing. And when Mylan called up one day and said, hey, you know, do you want to be the CEO of this company? And there's no way I can do it anymore. I need to just focus on technology. I need somebody to steer the the business Mm -hmm. side. And it was, as I like to say, AI, robots, and weed. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah, it just sounded fascinating. And like for me, yeah. wow, this is like a real application of artificial intelligence, which is it's just machine learning, but that's 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 being used by these robots. Robots yeah. are cool, AI is cool. And then you know, cannabis is this like new frontier of business, which is really just in its early stages as a as an institution and it's an industry, and it's gonna change a lot over the years. How do you think about the people you decide to partner with? One of the things that I believe about myself is that I'm pretty easy to get along with. I'm generally looking for people who are cool. <laughs> I mean, that's like, you know, and when I say cool, like I don't yeah. know, they know all about the great styles and stuff. I'm talking about like as humans cool. They're generally happy in their lives. They're interesting. They're real. They're not fake. One of the benefits of being this like all over the place. Like I am. I'm not just like that in career. I'm like that pretty much with everything. Like I probably played every single sport on the planet. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've done like, <laughs> I'm like truly the jack of all trades when it comes to that kind of stuff. And so, yeah. you know, like there's always something that like I've done or experienced which can relate to somebody else in some way. So I think my is really big in outdoors and backpacking. So we have a yeah. connection on that. I think I'm looking for people more like that. This is very different than my other engagements. When I went to work at LinkedIn or Bridgewater or Cameo, I was going into pretty established companies. It wasn't like they were an early startup kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This was this is a very different scenario. I mean, this is like real startup startup. We have six employees. Yeah. I'm the only non-engineer in the company. And we're building something incredibly difficult and mm-hmm. we're trying to disrupt an industry. It is a moonshot with incredible upside, but also mm. just very significant risk. The leadership that I'm experiencing at Farmhand is just like miles away mm. from the leadership that we had to experience at LinkedIn. It's just very, very different. And I think that yeah. you have to change a little bit. You can't be the same person. At my company, if you were like a quote unquote big company CEO coming in trying to like build a bunch of process and yeah. structure and culture and this and that and investing in that heavily, you would be taking away from the other really critical 
things that have to be done. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm the CEO, but I'm also the CFO. I'm also the CRO. I'm also the CHRO. I'm also the CMO. It's just not as critical for me to have all the, you know, for us, it's about finding product market fit. One of the ways that I've had it, heard it said best is like before product market fit, you're not really a company in like the traditional sense of like a company yeah. with like yeah. the elements of like culture and process and like all the rules we know about what makes it work. You're like a ragtag team that are like desperately looking to like make something work. You mentioned that like it's different, it requires different things. Is there anything you've learned about yourself? It's hard to have like a moment of like epiphany, like, aha. Uh-huh. One of the things that I uh, struggle with, and we were talking about leadership, I saw one of your questions out. Yeah. And I'm the only not as a non-engineer in the group. The engineers I work with are very engineering. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning like the brilliant scientists. Yeah. They're working with things that are very new and very different and very hard. I mean, this is like, you know, the, the, the level of, of complexity of what we're building is like truly yeah. hard to fathom. I'm yeah. Like, through the technology for a moment for you, you know, you know, beyond the AI. Yeah. I mean, the AI honestly is like in some ways the easiest part. Mm. So we're using an open source model for AI. It's all about the tools to do the training and to ingest the data into the AI so that it's mm. set up the right way. That's like the vast majority of the complexity. But then there's this whole series of software that runs the robot and communicates with the AI, levels of software around that. And then there's the robot itself and all of the hardware. We're building custom daughter boards. Yesterday, I was lubricating our horizontal tracks for our trim heads. I was greasing them up with one of the new machines we're building. <laughs> so like, there's like all kinds of stuff going on, right? Yeah. New thing I learned, I learned how to tap a screw. I've never done that before. I think that with a lot of the conversation I've been having with folks around now with Gen Z coming in and, and the fear, I think a lot of what I hear about with the modern workplace is actually fear around cross-generational working together. And I'm struck by the fact that like where everybody else is kind of freaking out at this thing the world is throwing at us, you dove head first. You wanted to make your place more diverse. You wanted it to be more intergenerational. I'm curious, first of all, why you even wanted to take that on. And what are any lessons you think you learned from doing it years ago? Wow, thanks, Thomas. Uh, so it was a super amazing, important thing that I got to work on in my life, which was so mm. rewarding. You know, one of the mm. most important things I worked on. And I think about the meaningful relationships I've built out of that program are incredible, mm. right? Mm. Uh, young people came to that program that I'm still connected to. I mentor my network of those people is, is, is incredible. And I'm so grateful for that. It was great mm. in terms of uh, opening my eyes to a lot of things, as well as I think helping the company. The irony of what you just said is that actually, I believe LinkedIn actually had to end the program recently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I didn't want to, they would have loved to continue the program, but we were in a unique moment of hyper growth, which allowed us to take advantage of this program. We were hiring and growing so fast and we had set up our system in such a way as to have it be pyramid-like structures of like young people moving up into more senior jobs getting promoted from within. We had we had core values that aligned with the strategy, promote from yeah. within, build a diverse organization, hire better, faster, things mm-hmm. like that, right? Give people opportunities to understand, you know, a different structure. We had these opportunities in front of us. So it kind of just all fit together like a perfect puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. We were able to hire the best and the brightest, hire a huge proportion, you know, a disproportionate amount of minorities into that program as opposed mm-hmm. to you know, into other programs. The truth is like, you know, if you look at the available market of black sales 
leaders or salespeople is much, much, much smaller than the available market of, you know, really smart young black kids graduating from college. Mm -hmm. So it's just much easier to basically build out. And we also believe that we could build better than we could buy. The program was was built on those factors, which allowed us to grow because we're able to project out the future growth of the business and that we would need this many sales development people and Mm -hmm. by this period of time, because this many would get promoted through. And as a result, we're going to basically hire and go. We had a really, really great program, passionate people, really aligned well to the to building people who fit into our culture and grew within that. And and I and I know that there's many, many people from the BLP program who are still at LinkedIn today, are part of it. And I think are, you know, definitely happy to be there and happy that they were part of it today. One of the things you didn't run into was like cultural differences between like bringing on this whole bunch of young people into a much older org. Like you, you know, you kind of overnight reduced the average age of your organization by like seven years. That doesn't like go off without a hitch. But but what I'm hearing, were the things culturally about LinkedIn that made that not as much of a problem? The older generation, well, first of all, my generation is Gen X, and I was yeah. probably quote unquote the oldest generation. People in my generation, like we're on the beginning end of the technology revolution. And I think what really defines these cultural groupings is the introduction of technology and the internet. You know, I mean, truly Gen Z is different because it's an internet raised generation mm. versus like millennials have more of it. And then mine had like the least of it, but we had a little mm. bit. And so mm. we're all like a little bit connected to that way. Whereas my parents, boomers or whatever, I had some zero, right? It's mm. just like, you know, just mm. this new thing for them. It's like, mm. you know, oh, look, a television, right? So yeah. we all connect from a technology perspective a little bit more. We worked at a tech company. So everyone there is a little tech savvy and you understand what's happening. And I think, yes, every once in a while, you have to kind of smirk yourself when you see a bunch of young kids playing ping pong at a table and you're thinking like, what's going on here? Right? <laughs> For the most part, I just really enjoyed it. I looked at it as really like a benefit of like having a youthful culture and new ideas coming in and having different mm. types of people in there to me yeah. is, is always a strength. And when I think yeah. about diversity, like that's the core of why it matters. You create new perspectives and new ideas and a new sort of like grouping of a culture, which can allow people to work so much better together. The story of diversity in corporate America, in my opinion, is really also the story of diversity in America. I mean, we're one of the most diverse countries in the world. <laughs> yes, we certainly have our cultural differences and mm. see it more now than it ever was. It's still like that. But also for many, many, many years, we've had incredible interaction and integration between our cultures. It would be uh, it would be a mistake to sort of just think, oh, we're just two separate like blue and red worlds today. The reality mm. is, is that we're way more purple and that if you really look across like what's really going on, we have like a very, very multicultural organization, country and that multicultural country is a reflection of these businesses. And I think it's one of the reasons why America has been so successful as a country, as well as why American businesses have been so successful. It's interesting that there's very little that is mentioned about the multiculturality of America in positive and a positive lens these days. What would your advice be for a leader who has led through rapid growth, who now is facing as many leaders are an economic decline and like a, just a very different environment from the job, quite frankly, they, they signed up for? You know, I've been through two in my, my first company. I spent, we didn't talk about Ariba, but I spent 10 years at this company called Ariba. It's a high flyer in 1999. And then we had to lay off thousands, thousands of people. What did I learn about that? That experience, and that experience, by the way, I would say has like really stuck with me. Make the hard decisions 
now as opposed to later. When companies wait on these things and wait and wait and see what happens and see what happens and see what happens, it actually just accelerates their decline. I've seen the same thing over and over and over. And as as a leader who has the power to make that decision, my advice would be I would over-index towards being aggressive in cost management, talent management in times of struggle, as opposed to being cautious. What is something Brian today would tell Brian of LinkedIn to definitely keep doing? And one thing he'd tell him to do differently. I think I'm the same person as I was back then in that I truly believe in being a servant leader. You know, my whole thing is about helping others to achieve their goals, not necessarily driving others to achieve a goal. That's the hardest piece of leadership for me, which is like inspiring others to push on and and do things. And my inspiration is always just trying to demonstrate the standard. You know, a good friend of mine, Fred Kaufman, told me that leadership is setting the standard, demonstrating the standard, and then holding others accountable to the standard. And that's always been my strength. In terms of something that I would avoid, and I think I knew this back then, but like it's always just the case is like it's easy to believe that it's all you. It's easy to believe that you're you're greater than all the other things in the world that sort of like drive outcomes. If I was advising myself then, I would be yeah. like, hey, dude, don't believe the hype. <laughs> you're just a regular guy. You, got, you need to keep working as hard as you can. Don't take any of this for granted. Pour yourself into it as much as you can. And I'm not saying that I, that I, I did that, although that I probably did to some extent, but I think that's always good advice for, for yeah. people who are sitting in these, like, these moments of like greatness. And now it's time for a recurring spoken story segment where we hear from the people behind the organizations and leaders that we feature. This week, I wanted to dig a little bit into Brian's past and hear from some of the people who've been impacted by his authentic, humble, compassionate leadership over the years. I talked to three folks who credit Brian with a really deep impact on their careers and lives. First up, we had Troy Kosi. He's currently the head of platform at Kapor Center Investments, where Troy supports underrepresented investors in reshaping the tech landscape with inclusivity and innovation. We'll also hear from Karen Chi, a founder, coach, and fractional CRO who takes her two decades of experience in sales and revenue operations in the tech sector to build the next set of hyper-growth businesses. Our third perspective comes from Naomi Davidson, VP of People and Operations at Trusted Health. Prior to Trusted Health, Naomi was founder and CEO of Tribe.ai for over five years, where she worked on revolutionizing leadership development. Each of these folks have built incredible careers. And here's what they had to say about what sets Brian apart as a leader. So Brian's biggest strength as a leader, in my opinion, is his ability to get to the heart of a problem and advocate for a person or a cause in which he believes. Um, I've had the distinct pleasure of calling him a friend, a mentor, and a colleague for the past 10 years, and have not only seen him do this for myself, but for others and other projects across the organizations that he's worked at across the years. Um, Brian's respected. He can bring people together and find resolution quickly. 
I'd say Brian's most prominent superpower is his eye for talent. I've had the privilege of working closely with Brian for well over a decade now, and I've seen him invest in folks over and over again. He prioritizes people and their personal and professional development, and he has a knack for helping people see the opportunities in front of them and also inspiring them to seize them. Brian Frank's superpower is the incredible followership that he inspires in uh, folks. He has a virtual army of people from all backgrounds and walks of life who would go to the ends of the earth for him. And I'm one of those people. How does he do that? He sees and invests in people in really unique ways. I wouldn't be in the field of HR if he hadn't known, seen that I'd be a natural fit. He gives these gifts generously and freely and inspires incredible loyalty. And that brings us to the close of our time this week. As I reflect on why I find Brian's story so important and inspiring, I realize that his model of compassionate, authentic, and humble leadership is so desperately needed in Silicon Valley, but really in our country right now. And Brian is a reminder that this kind of leadership isn't just possible, it's powerful. And who knows whether if Brian had been a different kind of leader, LinkedIn's outcomes would have been different. I can fully imagine a world in which they would have still been incredibly successful with a very different leader's profile. But what I know for certain is that they would have produced far fewer Troys and Karens and Naomis. Who we choose to be in the world is very often even more about the people we'll interact with than ourselves. And so that is my wish for you, dear listeners, that this week you would find the energy to put the work into your own internal transformation, no matter how small, not just for your sakes, but for all the leaders you're growing around you. As always, I'm Thomas Egeme, and this is Venture Visionaries. I'll see you next week.